Hi, welcome to Book of Mormon Central. Come follow me with your hosts, John Cho and Lynn Wilson. We're glad you're here. Yeah. So we are covering week 26, 1 Kings 1 through 11. Yeah, we're going to focus on the rise and fall of King Solomon. Yeah, let me, let's start with, of course, our three key questions here. Oh, good. How does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? And, you know, we can learn from bad examples as well as good examples here. And it's just tragic to see a good person who leaves the faith. And unfortunately, King Solomon fits the pattern of uh, that probably many of us have seen in our own sphere of those who have lost faith because of either sin or doubt or a lack of faith or a friend leading them astray. Yeah. So last week was very eventful, right? We we cover Saul and David's rise and fall. Yeah. And now we're on to Solomon. And now we're starting with First Kings. And again, First and Second Books of Kings was one long book, and they divided it because of the length of the scrolls. But it continues the storyline right after First and Second Samuel. And it has a lot of similarities to First and Second Chronicles. They most biblical scholars think that Chronicles was edited after the fact and added in a little more perspective and changed a few things and made it a little more rose-colored. But it's always good to read the stories in both places. But I think for the our podcast today, why don't we just stick with the text of Kings? Okay. And um, these first eleven chapters with the we've seen the rise and fall of Saul the rise and fall of David, and now we're on to King Solomon. Actually, David's still an old man here at the beginning. In the first Samuel, two verses. Samuel's passed away, right? Yes, and Nathan and Gad are the prophets. So our main characters are the prophets again and the kings. And I'm just going to give a little overview first before we jump in. It helps me to see where we are. You know, David was about 1,000 B.C., approximately, B.C.E., and he's now an old man, so we've got to take that off there. The first two chapters is Solomon coming into the throne, and then a couple more chapters on Solomon's wisdom, chapter three and four, and then building of the temple. And I'd love to talk a lot about that in five to seven. The beautiful dedicatory prayer in eight that's used as a pattern for our modern temple dedications. And chapter nine is that continuation of the covenant with Solomon is promised an heir, and then we start hearing about all his wisdom with the Queen of Sheba. But in chapter 11, it begins this slippery slide downhill as we see Solomon falling for these foreign women who bring in foreign gods. And I see his dad and the previous efforts for 450 years of trying to rid the promised land of <laughs> idolatry. Right. And in one generation, in, in just a, a few decades, King Solomon brings in all these foreign gods return to the land that his father worked so hard to remove them. And such a great man had the potential to fall so deeply. It's just tragic. So as that is a sort of a overview, do you want to dive into the text or is there the anything text. else? It seems like just because you're a king and just because you're a great man or a woman does not mean you're not going to have the vagaries of old age. And it sounds like the people were very frustrated that their king was not able to lead as they hoped that he would lead. And his sons are getting upset about it, and they're trying to take control. His oldest son, as well as his his beloved Absalom, he has almost has a weird relationship with Absalom. He just loves him dearly. Sometimes the troubled child gets a little more of the heart pangs. I don't know. It's It's rather ironic to me. But they're supposed to be potent in all respects. 
And, you know, David becomes powerless and it really is driving his sons crazy and everybody else. And so uh, they're vying for power. And I love the fact that in these first this first chapter, we see Bathsheba again in a different light. We didn't talk a lot about Bathsheba last week, but I would like to just, I don't want to ever defend wickedness, but I would like to defend women in the ancient world. When a king calls you, you come. Now, adultery is adultery, and we do not need to ever say anything against that. But I do appreciate that we don't have the whole picture here and that we do see her now in a different light as she is trying to reason with her husband and she still is having to keep a lot of decorum. I, it's interesting to me to see, look at verse 11 in chapter one, the prophet comes to Bathsheba and the prophet is the one that says, okay, another son is trying to claim the throne and your son is supposed to be the next prophet. And his name is uh, on the throne, Solomon, which means peace, but his name at birth is different. And I really appreciate the fact that he chooses peace as his throne name because he was to be a king of peace. This is why he could build the temple, was right. it not? Because the Lord knew David would have a major tragedy and the Lord knew that David's responsibility needed to be in, in clearing the land of idolatry. But the prophet comes to Bathsheba to say, I need your help. We got to get through to the king. And um, she does it. She rises to the call. I see her as an Esther, the woman of the hour who's, who comes in. And it says in verse 15, she went to the chamber and the king was very old and explains the situation and says, you know, this is very dangerous for everyone because you have not clearly stated who is going to replace you. And you've got to act. And she lays it out in a way that gets gets through to him. And it wasn't just Solomon that she's trying to protect. It's also Zadok, his high priest, and the prophet, Nathan. And they all come in in verse 22. Um, while she yet talked, Nathan the prophet also came in and told the king. And David finally acts, and that's in, in verse 33. Take with you the servants of your Lord and cause Solomon, my son, to ride upon mine own mule and bring him down to Gilhon. This is sweet. It's the source. It's the traditional entry for the king is now on a donkey, or, or in this case, a mule. Interestingly, mules, since they cannot procreate, were one of those things that were prohibited by the law of Moses. So we see that David is not following the law of Moses with exactness in his later ages here. But Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint Solomon in verse 34. and So we continue with the tradition of effectively the prophet calling the next king. Yes, they're still obeying Deuteronomy 17, where God says, if you're going to have a king, let me f call him. But after this point, unfortunately, this is the last one. This is the last one. In both the northern and southern tribes, we have a lot of, of wickedness there. But we'll talk about that next week. Right now, um, we just have this ironic dual, you know, half of the, in one section of Jerusalem, people are trying to follow one brother and another section, the prophet, priest, and king are being anointed in another way. And we look forward to the day when our savior will be our prophet, priest, and king, because we mortals keep messing everything up. <laughs> and that's just what happens here. But the anointing is accepted by the people, it looks like, in, in verse 40. 
and the people came and after him and the people piped with their pipes and they rejoiced with great joy so that the earth was rent with the sound of them. So it sounds like a wonderful experience. And then the big brother comes and holds on to the horns of the altar. I guess this was a practice to plead for safety. And Solomon is his finest. Um, this is verse 50. He holds on to the horns of the altar. And of course, the horns represent power to save or um, the power of the Lord, the place of atoning sacrifice. If we're going to ask for the Savior's help, he would be our Savior and Redeemer. It would be right there on the altar. And King Solomon says in verse 52, if he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not a hair of his head of him fall on the earth in him, and he will not be die. So this is wonderful. We see a generous, magnanimous Solomon However, unfortunately, in chapter two, David says, okay, now Solomon, I didn't kill any of my enemies and I need you to take off some of them, which is really unfortunate. We keep seeing these sad sides of David that he did not remain as divinely focused. And I mentioned earlier that First Kings parallels First Chronicles. Here it's First Chronicles 28 and 29, and they're the one that record this conference where, where David asks for help there. But I think it's sweet that David's last words were the same last words that Moses said to Joshua. Do you want to read verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2? I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. So we learn in verse 3, he charged him to walk in the ways of God and to keep the statutes and the commandments and the judgments of his testimonies that are written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper and here's the tragedy. He's saying this to his son, who is the wife of the adulterous relationship that caused his downfall. And we learn in section 132 that he lost his exaltation because of the murder that he committed in regard to our dear Uriah the Hittite. But verse 3 here, we we see this all over the Book of Mormon. Oh. This the same phrase, right? Basically, if you keep my commandments, you shall prosper. In, in these, oh, effectively, these yes. words, right? This is a great theme of the Book of Mormon. Right. Yeah. Repeatedly. And in actually uh, direct in parallelism to, to Nephi and Jacob and, you know, the unrighteousness of the early Nephites with their multiple wives and so on, some of the same problems. That came. Yeah. yeah. Quoting this, you know, same scripture in the, in the same, almost in the same context. It's very right. interesting. So David dies in chapter 2, verse 10. He slept with his fathers. And he is buried in Jerusalem. He calls Jerusalem the city of David, the city of the Jesuits, that great place that he conquered. And, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about when he bought the threshing floor from the Jesuits. So even though he had conquered them, he knew that Mount Moriah was a sacred space. I assume he knew it was Melchizedek's city and that he knew that's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. If he were king, I assume he had access to the records. Uh, where these things would have been recorded. And it's clear in Genesis that Abraham sacrificed on Mount Moriah. And so he says, I still want to buy it from you. And it's this top of the threshing floor, the top of Mount Moriah, where the Lord stops the plague. I see also as a type of Christ, this location, everything points here to something very sacred, a very sacred space. And as the plague was ceased there, so will all the plagues of the world ceased with our Savior's atoning sacrifice for all to have immortal life and 
to have exaltation for those who receive our Savior's gift. Anyway, beautiful ties here to this location. And as we continue on from this anointing in this beautiful source of water here, the either the Gihon Spring or something, Solomon is now setting the stage. I see like the triumphal entry of our Savior. He is riding on the king's mule uh, or donkey coming into Jerusalem as the king. And that was my first thought when I went. Triumphal entry. Yeah, when David was put him on the mule and send yeah. him in. And it's, I think it's um, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, that prophesies that the Messiah will do that same thing. But I think it's good to realize that this was the way kings came in, in the ancient world before the Mormon horse became the fighting animal, you know. But then we move on to the Solomon's wisdom and we get a little bit of Joseph Smith translations changes here that let us know that the Lord was not always pleased with him, right. <laughs> which is good to check your Joseph Smith translation because we've we've got some great examples, but there's a lot of irony. You know, the way scriptures are written, there's always multiple levels of interpretation. And I'm right away in chapter three, verse three, Solomon is praying for wisdom and he sees the Lord and he actually sees the Lord twice. It, it mentions it again in chapter nine. And the Lord is so pleased that he wants to bless others. And that reminded me of section 46. Do you remember when Joseph Smith is just arriving in Kirtland and people are doing all sorts of crazy things that they're claiming or gifts the spirit? And the Lord inspires Joseph to say, okay, let's get this straight. The gifts of the spirit are only there to bless other people and their gifts of visions and healings. They're not acting like a baboon and jumping around and barking and jerking. And those gifts of the spirit that are outlined there are five or six times in section 46. It says they are only to be used to bless others. And Solomon's wisdom is being used to bless others. So it's wonderful that his heart is in the right place if if we can just keep our righteous desires in, <laughs> intact. Um, We're seeing, we, we've read the story before. <laughs> yeah. But the story that is sort of ironic is the classic verse 28. Chapter three. Right? Of chapter three. Yeah. These two harlots come and talk about the baby and which which one of them has a baby. Well, it's ironic that they are harlots because the law of Moses says... A harlot is to be stoned, you know, that, that both the man and the woman who, who have sexual infidelity are to be stoned. And here we have harlots in Israel, harlots who are actually going before the king saying, I want some help here. And um, so there's a little uh, foreshadowing here of the divided kingdom, I think, as he says, well, let's cut the baby in half. You know, there's always multiple levels to the scripture and you see faithful Judah and faithful Israel not there. We see harlots in both places. Both of them are asking for help. So anyway, it's it's just another way to look at these this story as prefiguring the future kings that are, that are going to be here that come at the end of, of his reign. And of course, Samuel wasn't the only one that warned about the bad kings. And Nathan does the same thing and says they have got to change. But Every single thing that Samuel warned about, Solomon, I'll get my kings right, he does. He imposes the high taxes. He puts on the levies. They have to work one month, every three months or, you know, and then we have these three tragic stories that follow one right after another in chapter four, right after the fact that he saw the Lord and was given the gift of wisdom. 
So I guess for all of us, it shows that we can all make mistakes, but it still says if we can just follow the prophet and the teachings of our God, we can be like the prophets. We can be like Samuel and Nathan and and actually serve the Lord rather than... Yeah, I want to revisit this because, I mean, obviously this happens within a couple chapters. It kind of took two whole books yeah. to kind of get through David and Saul, and we have more details on this one. But, I mean, this pattern again of Solomon starting out in a absolutely the right way, right? In humility, I just want to serve the Lord, right? I want to use my spiritual gifts to help. And then so quickly, as you as you note, right, almost immediately you would say, how, how does it, how does this happen? Do you, do you think for to someone well, first like of all, Saul? We need to guard ourselves. You know, I see. I would be very surprised. It says very clearly he is marrying women out of the covenant. He is losing the connection with the covenant. He is no longer following the prophet's example and call. He is taking things into his own hands and saying, "I want her. I want this political alliance." And I don't want to blame it on the wives. I'm blaming it on him. But really tragic. And yet the Lord still allows him to build the temple at this early point in his, you know, he starts working on the temple on the fourth year of his reign. So it's really quite early. And he finishes it in seven years because his father's already got all the equipment. He's already even talked to Hiram of Tyre to help with all the workmanship. And he, he's got these fabulous artisans. It sounds like they're really gifted. And in seven years, they're able to make this house of stone chapters five to seven, I'll talk about this. And I I think considering what kind of tools they're using, you know, iron is, we're starting the iron age, but they don't have anything. It's very early in, in this. And he does a, a great job. And in verse 12 and 13 in chapter six, it says, if thou wilt walk in my judgments, then will I perform the works. I will dwell among the children of Israel and I will not forsake my people. If then statements are all over the Bible. God always gives us consequences. So when you ask, how does he fall? I think it's right here. First Kings chapter six, verse 12. If you will walk in my judgments, then I will perform the work and I will dwell amongst you. But on this beautiful sacred space, the Lord allows humans with all of our foibles to move forward and help build him a holy place knowing all the time that only his son will be a perfect being to walk on that space. That That's a great point to make. I mean, we get to see the character flaws from these kings, you know, for, for us to learn from, and they're tragic. But I also see the Lord's, is, his work will move forward anyway. Yes. Right? The Lord will move his work forward anyway. I look at this temple, obviously the tabernacle, you know, the, the mobile tabernacle, but but saying like, no, this is established. This We are building this here, right? At a stone. Uh, and it's Solomon's temple and that, that symbol, that temple that we still build types of today. Yeah. In fact, I really feel like the, it describes in chapter six, seven, and eight, the molten sea, the place for washings and anointings. It's huge, you know, 15 foot diameter. And, and then there's lots of other smaller ones. And it describes the the fact that they have to be washed ceremonially, and then he's going to be anointed, and then he's going to be an, pronounced a king. I feel like the ordinances that are done in our temples are not that different. I was grateful that Joseph Smith um, was told by the Lord, I think it's section 124, verse 38 and 39, where he says, these ordinances that we do now, the washings and anointings, our initiatories, were done 
in the earlier temples that Moses began, that he restored them and that they have been restored now again. So what's the... There was obedient followers at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There were, excuse me. And I I wanted to do that because the Lord was clearly doing this for them. Yeah, he's trying to help them become a holy people. He's trying to teach them how. And for us. And there's always repentance. We're going to mess up every day. Yeah. The problem is they don't repent thoroughly enough. And my husband and I were talking about this a few nights ago, the difference between a mighty change of heart and stopping the sin. Stopping the sin is not thoroughly repenting. You have to come unto Christ with full purpose of heart and have a mighty change of heart to truly repent. And we don't see that later on. But right now we're in the middle of the temple dedication. I don't want to belabor that point there. Um, so yeah, I, let's spend more time on, on this temple because for me, this is this is where the temple becomes, at least in ancient scripture, where it becomes very... Important, yeah. yeah. And, and it was the focus of the Mosaic law in Sinai. And it is just a, I see this as a renewal of that Sinai covenant and a plead for this dedicatory prayer is just beautiful. This is chapter eight, the dedicatory prayer there. And Solomon raises his hand up in the air, which is just how Joseph Smith did it at the Kirtland Temple at section 109. And I had been told that, that Solomon's temple dedicatory prayer was used as a pattern for all other temples. So I cut and pasted section 109 next to chapter eight, the verses on the dedication. And I was surprised to see how many phrases really do repeat back and forth, back and forth. Um, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee. This is verse 20, 23 in Kings chapter nine. There is no God like thee in heaven or above or on earth beneath who keepeth this covenants and mercy with thy servants who walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant, David, my father, you know, it goes on and on and on. And then we look at section 109 Thanks be to the name of the Lord God of Israel, who keepest his covenant and showest mercy to thy servants who walk uprightly before thee with all their hearts, you know. So we've got these beautiful overlapping phrases that the Lord inspired Joseph to write or that Joseph read this text and then felt inspired which parts to take out. Section 109 is much longer and and goes in different directions, but they still have a beautiful overlap and it's interesting to see the differences because they're very particular to the land. You know, when in First Kings 8, he asks, if there's no rain, we're going to come here to the temple and pray for more rain. If we're having problems in the battle, we're going to come here and pray for that. I love this calling people to the temple as a house of revelation, calling people in this sacred space to give their petitions to God and that he would hear them. And I feel the same way about our temples. When I really need to know an answer, I often go to the temple and plead with the Lord there. And section 109, instead of emphasizing rain and things like that, emphasizes protect us from our enemies. (laughs) Please. And right now, Solomon doesn't have too many enemies. You know, the kingdom is from the Tigris-Euphrates clear down to the Nile River or down to at least the border of Egypt. So they've taken that whole peninsula there, the whole I I can't help but think all the way back to Moses and the wandering because because he reestablishes— the covenant again yeah, at the temple, the right? In relationships with Egypt, so I kind of go back to that leaving of Egypt, and what would that have been like for you know these people who had been wandering in the desert for forty years and seeing this moment 
when the temple is built and dedicated. Yeah, hopefully they were all in heaven watching and cheering, and maybe there were heavenly hosts seeing that the fulfillment of this great covenant. Certainly Moses, Took some time. I would hope, would have <laughs> been there. And it does say that the cloud um, that was part of the tabernacle down in Sinai returns. Right. And the cloud is part of Solomon's temple. So, yes, what would that have been if they had been able to see this happy time, to see their nation established just as the Lord had promised even though it had been hundreds and hundreds of years in the making, they finally were able to make it there. And another moment of Solomon's best is at this beautiful dedicatory prayer. And yet it is still filled with if, then. It if, is. That, then. It never goes God away. God always will hold us responsible, accountable. We are not dumb idiots. We have got to take responsibility and use our best judgment and the gift of the Spirit, which we have all been given, the light of Christ, to make our choices. You know, over the last two weeks of just studying these scriptures in, in this light, what has really become more clear for me is that really what it means to endure to the end. And it's become so much more clear because because oftentimes I think it was like, oh, the Gospels are living this thing is hard, you know, controlling the natural man and so on. That's difficult and you just got to keep doing it. And for me, of course, of course, but what is really showing up and speaking to my heart a little bit more is like, just stay close to the prophet and to the Lord. And obey completely. Yeah. You've obey done it before, no, no matter how far, and the Lord will bless you for that, you know? And um, I've been lucky enough to be blessed tremendously in my, in my point of view. And just to know that's never enough. That's that's not enduring to the end. That's that's your height. We'll keep going. We'll keep going. And the sweetness of it is, I hope, as we become more and more holy, as we are following the prophet with exactness, as we receive the spirit more regularly, my hope is, is that the sanctification process through the atoning sacrifice of our Savior, we can become sanctified and we can become stronger and more purified because Samuel sees the Lord again in chapter 9, at this dedication, I see that he's getting stronger. Oh, Solomon. I mean, Solomon, thank you. I, I, I have missed up my kings as badly as I miss up my own children's names. <laughs> but ironically, the very next chapters talk about the queen from Yemen, or Saba, which we refer to as Sheba, with her rich trade routes, bringing all sorts of wonderful spices that she comes in and says, oh, wow, Solomon's 10 times better than I'd ever been told. You know, he's amazing. But we start seeing this opening the doorway of self-centered pride. and It comes from the peers, though, again, like oh, we mentioned before, that right? that interesting? That they listen too much to the counsels I of want human. to impress I want Queen, to impress. Queen Sheba, yeah, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, we see that idolatry, he has 700 wives. Did you catch that? Wow. <laughs> and concubines' wives, you know, I don't know how they're keeping them all straight. But anyway, the bottom line is it says that they turned his heart to idolatry in chapter 11. And when he dies, his son is sad, sad commentary on relying on the arm of the flesh. Rehoboam and the splitting of the kingdom comes into play. And it's just a tragic fallout. Solomon finishes as a horrible king. You know, he's broken every single guideline. In fact, I think Solomon looks more like a pharaoh. He's calling the Israelites to be his slaves. and That's an interesting connection I hadn't made before. Well, you were yeah. the one that just triggered it when you said, let's, let's look back at the beginning days. Solomon has taken us back there, and he starts out as a prince of peace, a king of peace, you know, with his name. Shalom, Solomon. So sad. 
But when we look ahead at what's going to happen with the splitting of the kingdom at his death, it's because of the way he ruled in his latter years. So you have to just ask, why did the Lord allow him to reign so long? But I think it's part of the problem with kings is they are in for life. And so why didn't the Lord just give him a big heart attack? I'm looking at 1 Kings 11 as you're saying this, and this is um, uh, Jeroboam, right? And Jeroboam is the person who takes the northern tribes. That is not his son. Rehoboam is his son. And Jeroboam is the one that the Lord calls but he makes some huge flaws after that, too. But in verse 38, you know, this scripture is in places we read this type before, and it shall be, if that will hearken unto all that I command me and will walk in my ways and do that is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments, right? Here this again. As David, my servant, did, that I will be with thee and build thee a sure house as I built for David and will give Israel unto thee. And I will for this afflict the seed of David, but not forever. Right. This parallels in the Book of Mormon, yeah. Nephites, right? This feels like the Nephites sort of turning, you know, there's this mix of righteous and unrighteous already. Oh, so, so to answer so your sad. question, there's a ripening that happens, right? He allows them to make their choices until it's time. But even then, even here, if if then, right? Mm -hmm. If you will keep on commands, if you will walk on ways, I will bless you. So David's descendants never become entirely extinct because our Savior— Right. is going to be the king from that That's line. Right. But the majority of the tribes are all now going to follow this other line of Jeroboam. And the Lord asks him, and we learn that he unfortunately does not follow as well. But we have some lost books of scripture, chapter 11, verse 41, the book of Acts of Solomon, which we do not have. So that will be a good one to read someday. And then we're told that Solomon also reigned 40 years. So David reigned 40. And I assume that this is literal rather than just a purification period. But unfortunately, it was not a purification period. Unfortunately, he started out good. And, and just as all three, uh, both of the predecessors did, so may we end on the high note of if we will hearken to all that the Lord commands and walk in his ways and keep his statutes and commandments, then the Lord can bless us with peace and prosperity if that's what we seek. But more importantly, with the spirit of the Lord and with cleansing of our sins, I just am so grateful for repentance. I feel like I have many of the same faults as these people do, but we've been given this wonderful gift of the atonement and understanding that we can change. It's never too late to correct a bad mistake. It's the fear and the stubbornness, I think. It's not so much the impulse because that, the pride. That we, we all have the natural yeah. man. Hopefully the impulse is not carried out like David's. It's <laughs> just right. stopped. That's you know. right. Anyway, God bless you. Good to God be with you. you. Thank you.